This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for those who care for us. I'm Paul Evans and this edition of Airing Pain is supported with a grant from the Hospital Saturday Fund. It's recorded that up to 20% of patients may have unnecessary dental treatment. So, I mean, if you've taken out a tooth, that's it, you've lost a tooth. There's very often not any outwardly visible signs so that somebody can look at somebody and say, oh, they've got chronic pain of the face. The amount of negative impact that facial pain can have on patients can be extremely high. We could probably manage to get by if we weren't using one arm or one hand or something. You know, there's a way around it. You can't really get by without being able to eat. It's difficult to express yourself. I suppose it's difficult to be who you are if you can't use your face. I'm not going to promise people, I'm not going to set up expectations that I can't actually meet. But what I can say to them is that extra level of suffering that comes on top of dealing with those symptoms, that is somewhere that I can have some impact on. Our face is the portal, if you like, to our world. Eating, talking, smiling, kissing, breathing and much more. In this edition of Airing Pain, we'll be looking at conditions that cause facial pain and management techniques and strategies that will help us live with it. Trigeminal neuralgia is not a common condition, but it is debilitating. Professor Joanna Zakshevska is a consultant in facial pain at the Royal National ENT and Eastman Dental Hospitals in London, and she's internationally recognised as one of the world's leading experts in trigeminal neuralgia. Trigeminal neuralgia is a facial pain, a very severe, one-sided, excruciating pain that comes in bursts. A single burst can last just for a few seconds to two minutes or you can have a burst that lasts quite long because there's so many of them, a series of stabs, that you actually think that it's lasting much longer and that can sometimes go on for several hours. But then you have a break and that's very, very important and the break can be for anything from just minutes to hours, you may only get two or three attacks a day, you may get no attacks. And then you can go into periods of what are called remission, when there is no pain at all. And then there are other periods when we call the relapse period. And the pain is brought on, it's an electric shock-like pain, brought on by light touch. So it's just gently touching your face, trying to shave, trying to wash your face. And it's made worse, obviously, by eating, drinking, talking. And it is mostly, except in 3% of patients, one side of the face only, lower part of the face most commonly, least likely in the top of the face. But it can be all three divisions of what's called the trigeminal nerve. And initially, it often feels like a toothache because it often presents around the mouth and the natural thing is to think, I've got toothache and therefore start your journey on this condition by going to see your dentist. The first thing the dentist will do is examine all the teeth to check whether there is potentially a dental cause. They will often do x-rays as well to check that there isn't an abscess forming or some other uh, decay under a tooth. Now, 
this is the difficulty. Some dentists will then be in a dilemma because they can see that there is potentially a dental problem, but they're not quite sure. Some will go ahead and do dental work. That is, they may do root canal work or they may even take the tooth out. And yet after those procedures, the pain doesn't settle. And it's very difficult for dentists to actually recognise that it is trigeminal neuralgia because it is rare. And it's about teaching dentists to ask the right questions. Four or five questions could be helpful to try and diagnose that. So again, the onus is also on the patient to try and record as carefully a history uh, as possible. But it is this paroxysmal nature, that is the intermittent nature of the pain, that is often a pointer to the fact that it isn't a dental pain because dental pain tends to be constant and there the whole time. Uh, and particularly if you touch a particular tooth, it is likely to set off a dental pain. Whereas in a patient with trigeminal neuralgia, just touching the gum around the teeth or the cheek area can set off an attack and therefore that doesn't come from the teeth. But it is very difficult because the trigeminal nerve supplies all our teeth and every single tooth has a piece of trigeminal nerve in it. So that's why it gets very confusing and sometimes the dentists have to hold off and wait a moment before they do anything drastic because it's recorded that up to 20% of patients may have unnecessary dental treatment. And the problem is that this dental treatment is often irreversible. So, I mean, if you've taken out a tooth, that's it, you've lost a tooth. Whereas if patients go to their GP, they might be given various drugs, but at least you can uh, take the drugs off and, and start again. So a dentist has a big onus on it. And we're now trying also to uh, develop a short questionnaire, a screening questionnaire, that dentists could ask their patients to try and see whether they can diagnose trigeminal neuralgia as opposed to a dental problem. So trigeminal neuralgia has been diagnosed by the dentist. What's the treatment then? So the first treatment is carbamazepine, a drug that has been recommended by the NICE guidelines, by our guidelines, and is taught everywhere. Now, dentists can actually prescribe carbamazepine, but it's a very as we call it, a black drug in the States. And it's a dangerous drug to use, difficult to use. So if you're not used to using, it's much better that the GP prescribes it first. So what happens in good communities is that the dentist will write to the GP and say, I think this is trigeminal neuralgia. I think the treatment is carbamazepine and leave it to the GP to start the first dosages. And the NICE guidelines say use carbamazepine if carbamazepine fails, either because it doesn't respond, which is unusual, or that they have severe side effects, then they should be referred to the secondary care sector. And the big dilemma is who to and how to do that referral. But in the first instance, carbamazepine can act as a diagnostic drug and it's only a small dose of it is sufficient to really turn that pain off in those first few weeks or months of the pain. So we often call it a diagnostic drug. So basically, if the carbamazepine works, it's trigeminal neuralgia. If it doesn't work, it's something else. 
What else could it be? It could be some other form of neuropathic pain, nerve injury pain, possibly related to having had dental treatment or an infection post-shingles or due to trauma to the face. So one has to then start looking at other causes uh, for it. And what we do encourage is that if you can't find a cause, then do refer into the secondary sector. And if you refer in to the dental schools, then we can get a opinion both from oral physicians who are well skilled to recognise trigeminal neuralgia and other types of facial pain. We also have the backup that we have restorative dentists who are skilled in reviewing for rare causes of dental pain because the one that's most difficult to differentiate is in fact what we call cracked tooth where the tooth has a crack in it and every time you bite on it you get pain but here the pain occurs on release of the tooth from biting. So in trigeminal neuralgia, it's that very first touch that sets off the pain. And that's a difficult one to diagnose. Some dentists in primary care may not find that because it's quite subtle. So if in doubt, we suggest referral in for second opinions. Is trigeminal neuralgia curable or is it just manageable? That's a very difficult question to say whether it's curable or not. Some patients will feel that it is curable, but I think in general it's a long-term condition that can be managed very effectively. So when we have just done a long-term cohort study, that is we followed patients up for a minimum of six years, what we found was that just under 50% had undergone neurosurgery in order to get pain relief. The others had remained on medication. And at the time of the survey, 80% of patients were saying that they were in a good place and that they were relatively pain-free, although quite a large percentage of them had to be on drugs. So I would say it is a long-term condition but it is manageable and probably more manageable than other chronic pains. And some patients who undergo major neurosurgery can be totally pain-free, off all medication and no need to see us anymore. Okay, you brought up neurosurgery. Where in the treatment path would that come? So neurosurgery is obviously a complex set of procedures and patients need to be prepared for it. Now, what we suggest in our unit and in our guidelines, that all patients, once they've been diagnosed, we're sure about the diagnosis and we call this phenotyping, and we have done an MRI scan because every patient with trigeminal neuralgia should have a scan, Once we have both of these, we do a joint clinic. That is, I am present plus a neurosurgeon. And together with the patient and their spouse or their significant other, we discuss the treatment. So we will look at the scans. The surgeons will propose what potential surgeries are available, given the medical history as well, because that will influence the choice and what drugs are available. And at that consultation, patients can have either decide, I want surgery and which type of surgery and can be immediately put on waiting lists or even have surgery fairly quickly if they're in desperate pain. Or they can opt to stay on medication. 
but the door is always open. So the moment they get more severe pain and they decide they can't cope with the drugs anymore because either the drugs are no longer working or the side effects are intolerable, they can opt to have surgery because they're known to the neurosurgeons and they can have their surgery fairly quickly. So the deciding factors are lack of efficacy of a variety of drugs, because I will have tried several drugs, and tolerability. And tolerability is a major, major problem. Patients feel cognitively impaired. They can't think properly. They can't find their words. They have memory loss. They get very tired, fall asleep at the drop of a hat. They can get unsteady on their feet. They can have double vision. They can start to fall over. So those are side effects uh, that we recognize in all these patients. And again, we've shown this by having patients doing computer programs and tests. This is an indicator for neurosurgery. So neurosurgery is done mostly now by neurosurgeons who are particularly skilled in working in what we call the posterior fossa, that is in the head rather than say on the spine. So the most effective procedure is a microvascular decompression, which is a big neurosurgical procedure because the neurosurgeons have to enter the skull. They do a small incision behind the ear and they get right inside the skull, not into the brain, and they look for the vessel. There's a big blood vessel that presses on the nerve, and that therefore causes the loss of insulation between different type of fibres and allows for this crosstalk between light touch and sharp pain. And so they move this vessel out of the way. There may be several vessels, there may be veins, but often it's a very big, large artery, which they have to do very delicately because if you touch that one, you've got a stroke or even death. And then close everything up very tightly so everything's sealed again and the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF, is contained again within the brain. Now, that gives the best option. 70% of patients will be totally pain-free at 10 years and off their medications. But there is still this 30%. Side effects are, obviously, there is always a risk of death, but it is very low indeed, 0.1%. And the main one is this leak of CSF fluid, but that can be mended there can be some sometimes loss of hearing, which is often a temporary loss of hearing, not permanent. But it is a big procedure. Patients stay in hospital for three days and it takes up to six weeks to recover. Now, patients who are not fit enough to have the operation or feel reluctant to have a big operation can have smaller procedures done, which are done under a short-acting general anaesthetic where a needle is passed through the cheek into what's called the Gasserian ganglion. And this is a point at which all the three major branches of the trigeminal nerve congregate together. They put the needle in, they do x-rays to check that the needle is in the ganglion, and then they can do a variety, three different things, and it depends which one the surgeon chooses. They can heat it by putting an electrical current through it, 
or they can fill that ganglion with glycerol, a toxic substance, or they can actually compress it with a little balloon. And all those three, therefore, cause destruction. So the patient will feel sensory change. That is, that side of the face might be numb and it's unpredictable. So you don't know when it's going to be numb and how much numbness. It can be just one little area of the face or it can be the whole side of the face. And that doesn't give as good a result. We're talking about 50% of patients having relief for five years, up to five years. But these procedures can be repeated time and time again. But the risk of causing permanent sensory loss increases and you can get what we call anaesthesia dolorosa. The final treatment is the gamma knife or what's more generally known as stereotactic radiosurgery. Gamma knife is the trade name. And this is the least invasive because all you have is you have to have four pins put under local anaesthetic just to stabilise a helmet that is put on the head and then you're in a similar to a scanner and radiation is projected onto the nerve in the place where we think is the main source of where the pain is. Now that treatment can take one month up to six months to work so it's not an immediate uh, result. With the other procedures, you wake up from your anaesthetic and you're pain-free. So this one takes a little bit longer to do, but is available to every single patient. There's virtually, except if you've got a pacemaker or some metal within you, when you can't shine and put somebody into a scanner, that one is available to everybody. So there are a lot of surgical options which can be repeated and patients are warned that they can have this procedure again because the big problem with trigeminal neuralgia is its total unpredictability. And that's what patients live with, the fear of pain return and often isolation because they're on their own, they haven't met anybody with it. And that's why we also run a psychology programme specifically for these patients. We have a pain management programme with our psychologists and our physiotherapists and we teach and make patients aware of how to manage flare-ups, how to meet each other and how they can use things like meditation, mindfulness. The first thing we do is recommend that they go to websites to help them with that, such as My Live Well With Pain, very useful website for them to, to have. Isn't it strange how a printer will choose to do its maintenance tasks just when you least expect it? That was Professor Joanna Zakshevska, and I'll give you the address of the My Live Well With Pain website at the end of this edition of Airing Pain. Susie Holder is a clinical psychologist working within that facial pain team at the Royal National ENT and Eastman Dental Hospitals in London. The psychologist's role in the facial pain team is about recognising and acknowledging the impact that facial pain has on people. Facial pain can feel really threatening because it impacts on your vital functions, the things that you need to be doing every day, like communicating, eating, intimacy. And it's really important that we get to grips with what the impact is on them and also think about what they can be doing differently. 
learning to manage and learn skills to be able to manage more effectively on a day-to-day basis. For a patient, it, it must be a fairly difficult thing to get your head around that you're going to a doctor to have your pain cured, yet you get to see a psychologist, a head doctor. You're right. And that's really difficult, isn't it? And a lot of patients can feel really distressed by that. And it is the way in which it's introduced that's really important. So one of the things that our team, our, our, our medicine team are really good, and facial pain team are really good at doing, the doctor or the dentist that they see on the team, what they're really good at doing is actually suggesting that this is really hard to live with. This is really difficult. We understand the impact that this is having on you. So it's not that we're suggesting that this is made up in any way, that this is a fictional problem, but this is really looking at how hard this is. And one of the things that we know, just like with other chronic pain conditions, is that people can experience things like anxiety, depression, as a result of living with a long-term persistent condition. And that's true of any long-term condition, not just facial pain, but that it brings difficulty. And the skills that we have to manage those may not be working for them. And they might need looking at, they might need broadening out, and they might need to learn different skills to help to manage that impact better on a day-to-day basis. We'll explore some of those skills a little later. Now, we've been focusing so far on trigeminal neuralgia, but not all facial pain is trigeminal neuralgia. In fact, compared to other conditions, it's not very common at all. Dr Roddy McMillan is a consultant in oral medicine and facial pain at the Royal National ENT and Eastman Dental Hospitals in London. The most common one, by quite some way, is uh, the temporomandibular disorders, or, or TMD as we call it for short, which is basically pain around the jaw joint and the, the muscles that, that are associated with the jaw. So that tends to be on the, the sides of the face, but can radiate uh, elsewhere, including into the, the ears and the side of the, of the neck, for instance, as well as presenting with, with pain inside the mouth. The other conditions that we tend to manage are mostly related to some form of of nerve wear and tear or nerve damage. One of the the most common ones that we see is called burning mouth syndrome, which presents generally towards the front part of the mouth, for instance, the tongue and the the inside of the lips and the gums. And that is to do with, with wear and tear of the nerves. That's what we call a neuropathic pain condition. And that's probably one of the more common ones that we will tend to see. We also see quite a mixture of nerve damage related pains or neuropathic pains, particularly affecting the teeth. And around that sort of area, we have a, a condition that we see not uncommonly called persistent idiopathic facial pain. It used to be called atypical facial pain and that's actually pretty common particularly following dental treatments even relatively innocuous dental treatments such as root canal treatment we know that around about five percent at least five percent of people who have had a, a perfectly good root canal treatment conducted by their dentist will have persistent discomfort in and around the tooth following that procedure more kind of obvious types of neuropathic pains Um, includes those related to sort of trauma or damage, such as people who've had surgery for cancer or any other types of surgery in and around the face of the mouth. 
procedures such as extractions of, of teeth, particularly lower wisdom teeth as an example, that can directly lead to nerve damage which can cause continuous or persistent pain following the procedure. How would somebody know that it wasn't just pain from having the tooth out? If we're dealing with, with pain following a dental extraction, if there's direct nerve injury associated with that, such as in the case of a lower third molar wisdom tooth, then quite often the area supplied by the nerve in question may be tingly or numb following the procedure. You would normally expect it to be quite numb immediately following the procedure if, if you've had local anaesthetic in there, but the, the numbness or the tingling can persist. That, that doesn't always happen, but, but that certainly would be a suggestion that there's been some at least bruising you know, damage to, to the nerve itself. Following a, a dental extraction, people expect it to be a bit sore for a few days or a couple of weeks afterwards. And generally, as a rule of thumb, people that have uh, nerve damage pain relating to, to dental extractions, despite the, the fact the area has healed up, they would have persistent numbness and tingling, potentially. In the case of people with neuropathic pain, we would tend to expect discomfort to persist in that area following the, the healing process. So as a rule of thumb, the figure of three months is used. In reality, most of these people will be aware of persistent discomfort much sooner than that. So these patients may have a combination of numbness or, or, or altered sensation, such as when they touch their face or their lip or their tongue, it's perhaps tingly, combined with this persistent discomfort or pain on top of that. Uh, it can present without numbness or tingling. And in the case of the idiopathic facial pain that we mentioned previously, they don't always have uh, numbness or tingling or altered sensation in that region afterwards. They, they may just have discomfort, which is persistent. So it's either there all the time or it tends to be present most of the time. What is the treatment for that? As a rule of thumb, most of the conditions in, in facial pain are neuropathic or related to some form of nerve damage or nerve injury with the exception of temporomandibular disorders which tend to be more musculoskeletal joint related or muscle related. The management of the neuropathic pain conditions affecting the face tend to be quite similar. The exception of course is trigeminal neuralgia which uh, has quite a unique set of medication options. But in terms of the other neuropathic conditions that we deal with, such as persistent idiopathic facial pain or trigeminal neuropathic pain, this is, which is the one that we would tend to see following surgical damage to the nerves, for instance, the main part of the initial consultation that we tend to do is taking a history. The important thing is listening to the patient's story, the patient's, what we call the patient's narrative. So actually finding out from the patient what has happened listening to how they're describing their pain. Uh, also, actually, quite importantly, listening to what they think may be causing the pain as well. Because very often the uh, assumptions from clinicians uh, may be one thing, but the patient's uh, beliefs and indeed their expectations can be completely different. So that's an important point. So part of the process may be that we will send patients for scans most of the time, we don't need to send them for x-rays. Uh, so things like dental x-rays have usually been con conducted by the referring clinician, whether that be a, a dentist, a, a neurosurgeon, or a, a neurologist, or whoever it may be. It's important to note that scans don't actually diagnose these pain conditions. They, they just help to rule out other potential causes for the symptoms. Uh, in the case of the pandemic, for several months actually, we were not able to, to see patients face-to-face -face, um, for facial pain conditions. And we found that 
the accuracy of our diagnosis using video conference or, or telephone was actually extremely good. The important thing to get across to patients is that even though uh, we can see no disease process as such, like an inflammation or an infection or a fracture or a dental problem or whatever it may be, that doesn't mean to say the pain isn't real. And uh, there is certainly well recognized that, that in the majority of the conditions that we treat in the face, we can't find an underlying identifiable focus of, of a problem that, that will account for the pain. The history alone is the important feature here in terms of trying to get an accurate diagnosis and it's really listening to the patient's story is absolutely crucial in this situation. Now you mentioned temporomandibular disorder. That's not a nerve pain. It's a collection of different conditions which effectively result in dysfunction or impaired function of the jaw, the jaw joints and the jaw muscles and or pain of the jaw joint and jaw muscles. The majority of these patients do not have uh, an underlying arthritic process with the jaw. That, that can happen, and we do see that from time to time. But it's relatively rare for patients to develop arthritic-related TMD, as we call it, temporomandibular disorder. Those patients will tend to present more with functional problems, such as, they'll say, I, I can't open my mouth wide enough to eat my dinner, or I open my mouth and it jams open in a have to wiggle it back into position or a clicking of the joints, etc. The majority of patients that we see will not have an, a significant underlying arthritic process or, or mechanical problem with the jaw. It will tend to be more pain affecting the jaw joint and the jaw muscles. The research would suggest about a third of people develop this pain condition during their lifetime. And the Consensus would tend to suggest that the majority of those patients, it will not be related to traumatic events such as dental treatment or, or a bash to the face or whatever it may be. Uh, it tends to come on fairly insidiously uh, and be associated very strongly with stressful periods in life. And as we mentioned earlier, this is not considered to be a neuropathic pain condition. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. It's, um, it's what we would call a central sensitization pain syndrome. Try to explain that in reasonably simple terms. The areas of the brain that process pain, there's a number of different areas, often overlap with other features in the brain, such as the areas that would deal with stress, anxiety, depression, these kind of negative emotional aspects of things. What we suspect happens with TMD, in, in, at least in the musculoskeletal or the muscle-related pain condition, is that when people become stressed or anxious, it sensitizes the pain centers in the brain and then signals will come down the nerves into the muscles and joints of the face and release chemicals in those areas which, which lead to the, the muscles and joints becoming tight, sore, sensitive, painful. 80% of those patients, the problem will not last for a huge amount of time. It may last for a few days or a few weeks and then it will usually settle down. The 20% of people who have what we call chronic TMD or long-term issues with the pain where it's either there all the time or it comes and goes very regularly and is more of a problem. Those patients, by and large, not always, but usually will have other risk factors in the background, reasons why this sensitization process hasn't switched off. Top of the list are conditions that are painful, uh, chronic pains elsewhere in the body. One condition which is at least physiologically, almost the same as, as TMD is, is fibromyalgia, which is it was quite common, uh, widespread musculoskeletal 
central sensitization pain syndrome. Other conditions we know are associated are things like um, anxiety, depression, sleeping problems, which often come as a, as a package together. And last but not least would, would be headache conditions, particularly um, tension type headache and, and migraines, which are again regarded as central sensitization pain syndrome. So it's a very complicated condition. And if somebody has chronic TMD, it's not a condition that we can say we'll give you a treatment which will definitely make this disappear or go away. And that's true of more or less all of the conditions that we see. But in certainly in terms of the management of these patients, then that kind of discussion is really crucial. One of the, the areas that we, we do tend to focus on is the role of regular exercise and physical relaxation activities in the management of chronic pain. We're not very prescriptive in our service about what we recommend patients do, but uh, if, if you speak to the physiotherapist, they will often say, I don't care what you do as long as you move every day and enjoy what you're doing, and that's really crucial. Dr Roddy McMillan, consultant in oral medicine and facial pain at the Royal National ENT and Eastman Dental Hospitals in London. Well, Rachel Stovell is a specialist physiotherapist in the facial pain team. We do spend time explaining pain, explaining how pain works, explaining some of the neuroscience behind pain, just to help people to appreciate that pain is a bit more complicated than if I find the bit that's broken and fix it, it'll all go away. It doesn't quite work like that with chronic pain. And also then helping them to, alongside our psychologists, recognise how we might need to work with normal behaviours and body parts and gain activity, but do it in a way that is recognising this sensitivity, but recognising everything else that influences. So alongside them, we will work with perhaps movement and exercise, exercise in this instance of the face, and then restoring their functional ability. It's all very well to exercise your face, to open and close and things, but that's not helpful if it doesn't mean that you're able to talk more, eat more and be intimate again. You know, those are the things we want to do, but you might have to start somebody off with gentle exposure to just moving that part of the body in a really simple way before you do the complex behaviours of eat, chew and talk. It seems to me that if I have pain in my mouth, on my jaw, if I'm eating or chewing something hard, that will make it hurt more. So I stop doing that. I start drinking soup instead of chewing things. But that is not addressing the problem. It's not. But I suppose with persistent pain conditions, it's difficult to address the problem because we haven't found a way of being able to get that nervous system to not be sensitive. But what we know with all of these conditions is that if we adapt the way that we use our body part that's painful in such a way that we're not doing what it's designed for, then we might have the problem of getting other issues. The area becomes weak, it becomes stiffer, it becomes out of condition. And on top of already having pain and sensitivity, that's not helpful. And it probably maintains some of that sensitivity because we're not perhaps exposing the area to normal stimuli and therefore we're going to get perhaps a bigger response to something that we would do normally because it's now being avoided. So yeah, one of the things that we promote and encourage in our work is this idea of exploring and working with that body part, particularly the face in facial pain, to allow for us to do what's normal in the presence of pain with the understanding that you're not harming yourself. 
that you're not actually creating damage or harm, that you're using muscles, joints, ligaments, bones normally, and that actually they need to do that to stay healthy. That's Rachel Stovell, specialist physiotherapist in the facial pain team at the Royal National ENT and Eastman Dental Hospitals in London. Earlier we heard from her colleague, psychologist Susie Holder, that skills can be learned to help the patient self-manage their pain. The therapy comes under the acronym ACT, and it's suitable for people with all kinds of chronic pain, not just facial pain. ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. It comes out of cognitive behaviour therapy, so lots of people have heard about CBT, but it's a slightly different approach. And it incorporates a number of different important mechanisms that we use when we're working with patients, either in a group or in individual. So those sorts of things include things like acceptance. Actually, it's quite a difficult word, acceptance. Yeah, people find that a difficult thing to digest. Often um, a doctor will say, you need to learn to accept this condition. And that's a hard thing, a difficult message for people to hear. I actually prefer the word willingness. Can I willingly live with these symptoms? One of the problems is that living with any sort of long-term condition, you've got the symptoms that you're experiencing, and that might be pain or it might be something else for another condition. But on top of that comes a huge amount of discomfort and distress, the suffering that comes on top. What we say to patients is, as psychologists, what I can't do is I can't cure, I can't take away that pain. And that's really hard to digest, isn't it? That's really hard to to accept that really they've come to our service because they're hoping that we're going to get rid of their condition to cure it. But the reality is they're going to need to learn to live with it. How could they live in a better way in the presence of those symptoms? So I can't get rid of those symptoms. I'm not going to promise people. I'm not going to set up expectations that I can't actually meet. But what I can say to them is that extra level of suffering that comes on top of dealing with those symptoms, that is somewhere that I can have some impact on. You may not want those symptoms. Of course you don't want those symptoms. But actually, could we approach it slightly differently? Could you come on a journey with me and I could help you to learn some skills to help you to manage it in a different way on a day-to-day basis? Some people say that you need to stop looking for that magic cure, that, that golden bullet, if you like. And I was speaking to somebody who said, actually, I don't have a pain condition anymore. The pain is there, but this is me. One thing can happen living with any sort of long-term condition is that life can narrow. We can spend so much time and energy caught up in looking for those cures. What can happen is that we stop doing the things that are important to us and that over time people can find that life can get very narrow. So yeah, can we learn to live alongside pain? Yes, pain's there. I don't really want it to be there. I don't like it. I, you know, I'd love to get rid of it, but it probably isn't going to happen. So can I find a way of living with it, but still doing the things, moving towards the values, doing the things that are really important to me in the presence of pain? That, I guess, is the acceptance bit. Now, it's commitment that I struggle with. ACT is really all about changing behaviour and doing things differently and not being pushed around by our thoughts and feelings and our pain. 
as well, the things that get in the way of us doing the things that are important to us. Part of the passage of this sort of treatment is recognising what our goals are, but setting up steps towards goals, so small, sustainable goals that are in line with our values. And so it's really all about changing our behaviours, doing the things that are important to us. You know, it might be that you want to socialise more, so your goal might be to go to a coffee shop and meet somebody, COVID permitting. So we're asking people to commit to goals. Okay. Now, we also know that commitment's really difficult. Yeah, if you ever try to change a behaviour, we all know how difficult that can be. It can take weeks, months to actually put a behaviour in place that actually becomes automatic, that we don't have to think about anymore. And sometimes people commit to something and then it falls off. And what we need to think about is, how can we recommit? It's okay that I've stopped doing it. Can I recommit again? And I again and again and again to doing the behaviours that are moving towards the goals that I have and are in line with the values that I have, that what's important to me going forward. It's avoiding a blame game. You feel like, well, I failed, I failed again. Absolutely. So one of the big elements is also working on those thoughts and feelings. So we all have a tendency to judge and criticise ourselves. That is a normal part of being a human being. That's what we do all the time. But if we get caught up in those feelings, then what tends to happen is that it impacts on what we do. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to do that well. I'm not going to do that, that pain concern podcast because it's just not going to work out for me. You know, I could have called you, couldn't I, and said, actually, I don't think I could do this. But I chose to recognise that anxiety, that it provokes and shows that despite that anxiety I'm going to do it anyway. So one of the important things we do is recognise that criticising, that tendency to criticise and judge ourselves and learn techniques to unhook from that. So we use various different ideas to help people take a step back from what they're thinking rather than getting involved with it and caught up with it worrying about what we've done in the past or what worrying about what could be in the future or beliefs that we have about ourselves and learn to unhook from those ideas. And that's one of the key skills that psychologists have for working with people. And we're looking at opening up life again, engaging with things whilst recognising that there's stuff that comes up that gets in the way. And we need to be aware of that. We need to observe that. We may need to use that information to help us to overcome some of the obstacles that get in the way. Clinical psychologist Susie Holder. Well, before we go on, I just need to remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. They're the only people who know you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Do check out Pain Concerns website at painconcern.org.uk where you can download all editions of Airing Pain and find a wealth of support and information material about living with and managing chronic pain. And there you can find details of how to order edition number 77 of our Pain Matters magazine, which is guest-edited by the facial pain team at the Eastman Dental Hospital in London, who are featured in this edition of Airing Pain. 
The My Live Well with Pain website, recommended by Professor Zakshevska, can be found at my.livewellwithpain.co.uk. That's my.livewellwithpain.co.uk. And if you or someone you know has trigeminal neuralgia, the Trigeminal Neuralgia Association UK website is tna.org.uk. Well, to end this edition of Airing Pain, Susie Holder was talking about obstacles to living better with pain. As we recall this edition of Airing Pain just before Christmas 2021, there couldn't be a better time to talk about obstacles, as the Omicron variant of the coronavirus is scuppering any chance of returning to what we used to call a normal way of life. Obviously, we did all our work face-to-face prior to COVID, and we've had to change very quickly the way in which we work. It's been great that we've been able to offer people telephone consultations but also and also video consultations away. So it's really changed the way that we work. What I've found is that, in a sense, what's, what's happening is then I'm actually going into somebody's house, in a sense, that when I make a phone call, that when I make a video call, I'm in their own environment. It has some advantages because they're making changes or thinking about making changes in their own environment. But I'm also picking up on lots of things that, you know, somebody's not just dealing with facial pain, but they're also dealing with the difficulty of perhaps loneliness of being on their own for many people, of feeling cut off from other people with similar sorts of conditions as well. We run an about-face pain management programme for facial pain. That's been really helpful in at least, as an online platform, at least you'll be able to have that interaction with other people who've got similar conditions to you. So that's been helpful as well. But yeah... If you think about it, you know, you're dealing with facial pain, but you're also dealing with a very threatening, fearful situation. I do wonder whether that level of threat and fear can also have an impact on the whole system and how we manage our facial pain. But there's so much you can do on a a daily basis. There's so much you can do in the present moment. We can enjoy making ourselves a nice cup of tea but we can actually experience it. We can actually be in the present moment with it. We can use some of those mindfulness skills that we, we've learned together to be in the present moment and actually enjoy everyday activities. Something as simple as putting hand cream on. We can all do that. Something very simple. What's that like? What does it, what's the feeling like of that cream on my hand? What does it feel like when I spread it out? What does it smell like? What's the texture? All of that actually being in the present moment rather than getting caught up with the worries about the past or perhaps fears about the future. A lot of the skills that we talk about in psychology are transferable to lots of different types of situations as well. If you had just one tip to give somebody, not just with facial pain but with chronic pain, to get them through however long this COVID period lasts, just to help them get through, what would you say? One of the things that I keep hanging on to is this will pass. This will pass. We will learn to live with it. We will have learned a lot about ourselves in the process. I think that we need to show ourselves self-compassion and look after ourselves as well within this and recognise, yeah, this is difficult. This is hard. But how can I best look after myself 
within this.